Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. It's a new day. It is a new day. There really is a new day dawning, but what that day turns out to be depends on whether we as progressives step up, operative word, in a new way. We have power now. We actually have a seat at the table. The president, President Biden, has strong progressives, believe it or not, in his economic advisory committee. There are large progressive caucuses in both houses of Congress. The chair of the Senate Budget Budget Committee is uh, Chairman Bernie Sanders, Bernard Sanders. Love those mittens, by the way. Stay tuned for my Bernie meme coffee table book. It's coming. (laughs) So it is time for us to recognize that our work has changed. It is going to take a new form. We are not some fringe crew. We can't behave like we are outsiders yelling and tossing tomatoes. That is what movements do when they are outside of power. We are the largest progressive movement this country has seen in generations at a moment when our proposals are the cure for what ails the country. Progressive measures that put people, humans first. Now, President Biden has set himself a difficult path. He wants unity and he wants more deficit spending than ever before in our history. He wants civility and he wants to purge white supremacy. Hmm, um, is there going to be like a Proud Boys tea summit or something? I don't think so. Because if you are like me, all that talk of togetherness brings back PTSD from 2008 and 2009. President Obama made early mistakes that had dire consequences that have lasted until today. And there is a danger that President Biden's longing for kumbaya could lead him into the same mistakes. I know a lot of you are scared that we will have another Obama response to the crisis that we are facing. But these are actually different times. We are more powerful, as I said. We are more organized, even with weakened unions. And the Republicans are in absolute disarray. They don't have a foot to stand on, even though they kept an electoral victory in the House. Which even, now keep in mind, even after Bush's disastrous presidency, they were not in disarray like they are today. So Chuck Schumer's offer at power sharing isn't a blank check to Mitch McConnell. Is it really work with us or else? Or else we will shove everything on the table for a vote? If the Republicans go back to their old obstructionist ways, then the Democrats should just ram things through. By the same margin, George W. Bush beat Al Gore. You know, one vote, one Joe Manchin vote. If Mitch and his happy gang don't want to share credit for rising to this emergency, then so be it. They can answer to that. You don't think Republican voters want $2,000 monthly checks and rent relief? The important negotiations right now won't be with Republicans. Sorry to break it to you, Joe. Bless their damn hearts. It will be with us, progressives, unions. We all know we have to go above and beyond in this moment of crisis. We have to learn from 2009, but we also have more muscle than 2009. We have the electoral opportunities, the crisis that deserves and needs the solutions that we are putting forward. And we have people in both the House and Senate and on the Budget Committee to move this forward. Of all people, mild-mannered Janet Yellen, of all people, our new Treasury Secretary, said it clearly when she testified about the $1.9 trillion relief plan, go big or go the F home. 
Okay, those weren't really her words, but that was her point, the subtext. Truth, truth is the, moder- the moderates and neoliberals don't have a choice. They do not have a choice in this situation. And if all of the institutional pow- pow- powers, all of them from Wall Street to the IMF are saying the same thing, it is okay to go bolder. Don't sweat, sweat the deficit right now. This economy is bad for everyone. And artificially pumping Wall Street will only buffer this for so long. It is time to attack the root causes to this systemic inequality. They actually know the truth. The worst is yet to come. Not only is the economic pain spreading out across more and more people, beyond low wage and frontline workers, soaring stock prices are pumped up with cheap money and will come crashing down unless the real economy is brought back to life. That means fixing what has been broken for far too long. Or in the spirit of Amanda Gorman's poem that she said yesterday, finishing what is unfinished in our economy. That means reversing the breathtaking economic inequality. It means purging the racism that is a core part intertwined with that inequality. Creating healthcare that is universal and accessible to all. Wiping clean, and I mean wiping clean, the debt burdens of students and tenants and those who are now drowning in medical bills because of COVID. And making sure, of course, that there is money in everyone's pockets. The bankers and the rich folks, they realize that in this economy, even even their seemingly limitless wealth will dissolve if the rest of us can't or won't spend. This is a consumer economy. And right now, we aren't spending either because we don't have the money or we are hanging on to it because we are scared. We are deeply scared about how much worse this is still going to get. That is what Roosevelt meant when he talked about fear or fear itself. People are afraid of losing their homes, their livelihoods, their health. That fear is causing people to retreat from each other and from spending. As bad as things are, we have not hit bottom yet. And that bottom could still be a long way down if we don't reverse the fear with real measures, tangible measures. A one-time $1,400 stimulus check, even a one-time $2,000 check, doesn't really make you less fearful if you and the economy are sinking. It's like putting a Band-Aid on cancer. A steady job at a living wage makes you feel better. Liberation from your student debts and back rent make you feel better. Confidence that the government actually knows how to curb this virus makes you feel better. Our job as progressives isn't to sit at our computers taking pot shots. Sniping won't move change right now. When you are deciding how to channel your energy, ask yourself this. Is this next action I'm about to take, is it to win clicks or to make people's lives meaningfully better? Our job is to argue as forcefully as we know how to for the actions that bring us back. Our job is to get all of our allies on the same page so we speak with a united voice. In particular, we need labor at the front of this fight, working in solidarity. They know how to mobilize. They know how to negotiate with power. The power that was elected by us and now must negotiate with us. If we show up ready to negotiate, that is. They know how to improve the lives of working people. Labor knows how. Powers that be know how. Biden made a mistake yesterday, leaving out any mention of labor and of working workers' rights in this inaugural speech. 
It is great to celebrate our frontline workers. Fantastic. And they did it at the DNC. Well, in Alabama, a group of those workers are getting ready to vote on bringing a union into their workplace for the very first time. And who are they trying to work with? Amazon, shipping all those billions of packages. Thanking frontline workers for their service is fine, okay? Makes a great ad. Makes you feel warm and fuzzy, I guess. But thank yous don't feed the family or pay the rent or keep them safe or give them PPE or make us less afraid of our future. Higher wages do. If Biden wants unity, he could do a lot worse than uniting Jeff Bezos with his own employees. That is unity. He should be putting pressure on the Jeff Bezoses of the world, the Elon Musks of the world, to do their job well, because they made more wealth than ever in the last 10 months, while their workers suffered more than ever. So I'm hoping that we can channel our left energy right now with unions in pushing Joe Biden to remember who got him into that office. The women of color on the front lines, the voters, the working people of Georgia who organized for him in the election and then organized again to give him a Senate that he can work with. This is not the time to be sitting and criticizing every single move. This is the time to be bold, thoughtful, and push the Biden administration into negotiating with us. We have an ex excellent show today. Chris Rabb is here, and you know he will have something to say about what Biden needs to do right now. And he's joined by Run Chowdhury, who will teach us how to use those levers of power and message to the Biden administration. But right after uh, this break, we will have our one and only, our in-house historian, Harvey Kay, on to talk about what we can do in this moment, what we can learn from past uh, moments just like this so that we are absolutely using our leverage in the best way possible. We will be right back right after this break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Uh, just want to send the love to the Twitch stream. To those of you in Twitch, if you didn't know, we are on Twitch. We sort of snuck in there. Uh, everybody in Twitch right now on the Twitch stream joining us there. Thank you. Uh, I hope you're watching while you're playing those games and you're focusing really carefully. I know, I promise I will be learning how to game so that I can host a show while I'm playing Halo or something. I think, you know, I know they say that women are really great at multitasking. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know if I can do that kind of multitasking, playing games and talking to historian Harvey Kay. Welcome to the show. Uh, Professor Harvey, Harvey Kay is, of course, the author of Take Hold of Our History, which is right over his shoulder right now. And uh, the book selection of the month for the TNS Book Club, we are in the midst finishing up uh, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. He is quite a rebellious revolutionary figure. He literally called for the revolution, revolutionary war, you know, a couple of years after he arrived in the US, actually it wasn't the US, it was America, which we discuss when we do our, our conversation uh, with Professor Harvey Kay. So if you're not a member of the book club, uh, join. We, we, have, we have some really good book selections. We'll get to that a little bit later in the show, but join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show, and you will be able to submit your questions to the one and only Professor Harvey Kay. Thanks for joining us. Hi, can you hear me all right? You sound wonderful. I got to tell you, okay. I, can, I, can I just give you a, a little bit of a compliment right now? You can give me, oh, a compliment all the more. I say, you can tell me anything you want. 
So I was talking to a friend uh, a few hours ago who's been on our show before. Uh, his name is Salvador Tio. He is a, he's the former head of the New York ACLU. Uh, he's a Puerto Rican independence uh, a- activist and advocate. He's a, a, a civil rights attorney. And he said, you know, I've been watching your show lately, Nomiki. I got to say, you have such great conversations with that professor who films up in his attic. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know what's really funny? This is in the attic, actually. Oh, this, I, is, <laughs> this is it's a very small house. I'm very proud to say it. I bet I've the I've had the fanciest title and the smallest house in America. You know, democracy and justice studies, and and in fact, this is like the loft bedroom. We only have two floors, and this is the lo- and three bedrooms. This is the loft bedroom, and I remember some weeks ago I was on. I think it was. It was either Autumn Leaves or Jewel. Somebody in the chat made reference to the fact that they liked the Mary Mako bedspread that was that was on. I don't know if you can see it. It's, it's back it's, there. It's somewhere. a lot of my view. Yeah, I just see books. But maybe, 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 maybe a Puerto Rican friend particularly liked that night. Wasn't I one night where I turned around? And I went to get a book, and I think I had my sort of lounging pants, those plaid <laughs> lounging pants on. That's okay. It's this is this is the world no, we live funny. in. It could be worse. We could have a Jeffrey Tubin moment with somebody on our show, and I'm really proud that we have oh, not had God. one of those I moments mean, yet. It's just like that would creep me out. No, f- Jesus. <laughs> but but no, seriously. It's I actually thought about it, and I thought I I thought should I have been embarrassed? And I thought no, I guess not. I mean, it's pandemic time after all, and it was. I think it was an evening taping we were doing, something like that. It so makes you reason. so much cooler. I mean, you already yeah, I mean, have been gonna, yeah, the coolest thanks. professor on our show, if I do say so myself. <laughs> uh, if we hand it, maybe at the end of the year, we'll do awards to our favorite guests and give them special, you know, that's something well, adds you to know the list what? of many things. The, 42, the 43 years that I taught in the classroom, you know, I started very back in my mid-20s. Um, the 43 years I did that, students came to class with pajama, pajama, you know, pajama pants on. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, I was, did that in college. That They'd roll out of bed and, and show up. The, so. Especially the 2002 era. I mean, that's when I went to college. I, uh, in a warm, I went to University of Arizona and it, there were, it was warm and there were a lot of kids wearing pajama pants. And it was so foreign to me because I had a dress code at my previous school. But, you know, we all, and now it's yoga pants, which you can, I just, sometimes I just wear uh, black yoga pants out and put some heels on and no one even knows. Anyways, uh-huh. uh, we got important work to talk yes, about. Right. There's a lot of stuff. Right. This is what happens in the Biden world. Not only do you have brunch, but we can just have these conversations now. We're not living crisis yeah. to crisis. You know, yes. And I, can I, I just want to refer back to your <laughs> I show. I you agree with me. I'm just joking. But No, I, I agree. Well, I, I, would, I, ne- I would never reject your arguments. How's that? No, well, actually, maybe sometimes. But here, the thing, I was listening to the show yesterday, okay, I was walking, actually around my basement, because it was too cold to be outside walking. And um, I was in, I was interested in how you would ask the guests, I think, like, to give a grade, or they gave it a grade, the, to the Biden inaugural address. And I, I thought it was fascinating that Tom Frank, gave, he either said a D or an F, I can't, I think he said an D, F. D, D. D. And then Marcus gave it, did he grade it, I think it was like a I think he gave it a high grade. I don't know if he didn't C. say A or anything, but in my head it was, no, he didn't say C. I think he was up to the B B side. Then somebody else, I think, offered a C. Arun, is that how you pronounce it? Oh, no, right. I Who said C. I? I said C. You said C. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I'm a tough grader, though. <laughs> I, I just thought it was interesting how people responded so differently to it. Um, well, I mean, there's also, it was extremely bold, right, that he, he mentioned white supremacy. That is, I think it was oh, yeah. profound that Marcus Farrell, who was on the show yesterday, uh, he mentioned that oh, Obama could have never said that. And I agree, whether it was, you know, eight years ago right. or today. Uh, I don't think he could ever say that, even if he was on his third or fourth term, if he could have done that. I don't think, yeah. I just think the situation, um, unfortunately, you know, that's why it's important to have allies, right? We have to have allies who can make statements that sometimes we can't make. Uh, so, yeah. you know, I thought that was bold. Uh, I also don't know if it necessarily is was the best vehicle to quote unquote unite. I mean, I think that there are still plenty of Republicans who thought the actions that happened on Capitol Hill were disgusting and are embarrassed by it. I don't know if they're necessarily understanding it's white supremacy. And that was something that was enabled by the Republican Party, the vehicle of the Republican Party and the Trump administration, the Trump Party. Um, so I, I'm curious. I mean, I wanted to start off with this because I think you and I have continuously been on the same page about how Biden needs to respond in this moment. And what I start off the show with was how I'm, I'm frankly flabbergasted that Biden did not mention labor. He, you know, if you want to unite, workers of the yeah. world unite. I mean, this is right. it was just baffling to me. You know, here's a really great way to unite the country. Yeah. Talk about the economy and work with labor unions in solving these crises. And it just, to me, shows how beholden he is to some of the folks who have, have been part of this transition and, and the new White House. Yeah. Okay, let me respond to that. First of all, I, I think I think it was marvelous the way he actually and he clearly in, said white supremacy. I also believe at some point he actually used the term systemic racism. I, it was these kinds of things. Um, and in fact, I don't know how I would grade it, but I will say that I remember hearing all the things you say, what was, but it was striking and I'll tell you all the more reason that it was striking in a moment. It was striking that other than to say something to the effect of people, people who work should get paid their worth. I mean, it, that wasn't the words he used, but it was like people. And I thought, well, people should get paid. Yeah, that makes sense. But you're right. He said nothing since he was so interested in unity. Yeah. Ask, he should have asked himself, what would it have taken to reach out to parts of the country like rural Wisconsin, which is not all farming, it's farmers and rural working people, mm. and maybe have said something along the lines that of, of, of labor, labor movements, um, the, the, the right to organize. It would have provided a little more sort of rounding out of that concept of unity. And he might have thrown in, you know, these speeches are meant to sort of signal things. That's really what they're yeah. about. And if he had just used one word, I think I would have felt great. So if he had said solidarity, it would have, it would have just struck me. I mean, it really would have spoken to me. Now, yeah. he, here's the more, here's the stranger reason in some ways that the, the speech ended up disappointing me, okay? I could see how certain people did receive signals that spoke to them. But here's what was so striking. Yesterday, they fired... Peter Robb, who is the general counsel for the National Labor Relations Board. He was the Trump appointee. He was anti-union from yeah. the very beginning of his career. 
and they fired him. And by the way, they're not they, historically, traditionally, they do not fire such people. Hmm. They let them fill out their terms. He had 10 more months. Interesting. And they told him he had till five o'clock to resign or they were going to fire him. I mean, it was it was wonderful kind of thing. And yet they said nothing about labor in the speech. And by the way, to add to the beauty of firing him, this is the beauty of it. He was involved with Reagan in the PATCO strike of 1981. Wow. In the firing of the of the air traffic controllers. So labor was just like labor was thrilled to know that he was fired because it wasn't just symbolic. It was a major move to say we're now going to replace him with a promising labor, uh, either labor figure or someone sympathetic to labor. And please, everyone should know, the National Labor Relations Board was set up back in 1935 not to arbitrate, not to mediate, which it may well do. It was set up to place government behind the efforts of workers to organize. And I think, and I, I again, I mean, I was really upset with the speech for failing to do certain things. It did not talk about class to any extent. But here he was, the Biden, the Biden, one of the first things he did regarding labor is to say, we're going to restore the NLRB, perhaps, to its original mission. And to me that, so, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to go overboard on it, but I can tell you that I think the jury's still out on what we have in store. And I think it challenges us. Mm-hmm. to figure out what we do, those of us on the left and those of us in unions and those allied with unions. I, I, this could be a really significant moment. And I, and I think it would be wrong. I actually want to go, I mean, I think a lot of people are going to be very disappointed with what I'm going to say. I think it would be wrong. I think it would be actually stupid to declare war on the Biden administration. And I think, it'd be, and I think it would be essential that we actually challenge and maybe even try to get out ahead of the Biden administration, use the very rhetoric that the Bidenettes are, you know, the Biden folk are using to make them move further along. I want to add one more thing. I'm talking a long time, but I've been so looking forward to talking to you. Bernie Sanders is the chairman of the budget committee. That's incredibly important. And I think there are real opportunities, real opportunities for, for progressives and, and social Democrats and, and, and even radicals, although I don't expect radicals to sign on to such moderation as I may have just been spouting. But seriously, I think, I think, we, have, I think we have a moment. We'll know soon enough whether or not we need to, if you like, take a different tack. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's essentially what my opening was about. And, and folks, if I you're heard part of it separate, and, I, and I appreciated that. I thought, yeah. I, I thought you were introducing me with that. Thank you. <laughs> well, I was thinking about it this morning. I was like, you know, there's something that we have, the, the game has changed, right? We're when, when, yeah. when, when you're, when you're dealing with different adversaries and they, and I do see them as adversaries. I do. I don't see them as allies right now. I, I think there's been very little, I mean, Bernie Sanders, earned his position as budget chair. He wasn't a gift to him. Let's just make that very clear. Um, We do not have seats in the, in the actual white house. Progressives do not hold seats in the actual white house. Are there economic, are there progressives or progressive leaning people uh, in the uh, economic advisors? Yes. Without a doubt. Are they from the Bernie Sanders wing? That's kind of a stretch there. Um, Right. So there's a real force here, right? We do have, real leverage. We have real manpower. We are the moment and the solutions that the the Sanders campaign in particular 
with you know some of the same solutions coming from other campaigns as well have been presented in the campaign. And now the moment is so much worse that these these solutions will help heal this crisis in which, like I said over and over, Joe Biden does not have a choice. He he cannot Band-Aid these problems. Band-Aids are what got us to this. The surface level astroturfing side of politics is not going to work in a moment like this. And so I think it's interesting that you start off with the inaugural speech is symbolic because I feel like there's something missing. Right. I don't I don't know what it is like. There's some decisions being made that are like you just said, uh, firing uh, the, the, the I forgot his name already. Uh, general counsel for the NLRB. I forgot his name, though, but gen- the general counsel for the Peter NLRB. Rob. Peter Roth, that was it. Um, that's that's big. Not enough, clearly. But it means that their head is in that space. Right. Yet right. there's like another arm in which you do want to signal these. I mean, you how powerful would it be if you were signaling this stuff to people? So I'm really confused. It's it's like there's there's a war happening internally in the Biden administration in which some folks are on one side, other folks are on the other side. It's like the messaging side is different than the uh, the policy side or the the staffing side. I'm so confused because for us as a movement, we have to understand where the pressure points are. And right now, it just yeah. seems very whirly-twirly. And I don't know who Joe Biden is. I know what he has to do. And if he doesn't, it's going to be a disastrous four years for him and the country, clearly. Um, yeah. And it's going to give way to the Republicans to, to, to pound him, even if they are yeah. weak. Yeah. Well, let me add to the confusion, but with a little historical perspective, so it may help clarify. Back in the night, and I, this has to do with the BlackRock folks who are now in either the administration or st- serving as advisors to Biden around economics. Remind, remind folks who BlackRock is. BlackRock, basically it's, what would you call it? A man, a, 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 a ma- some kind of management fund? Basically they, they control, or at least they're managing like trillion dollars in stocks and bonds. I mean, they're controlling corporations. They're They're running... The books. How do you? Yeah. Do, I don't even know the term. A firm, a management firm. I don't know. A firm. It's it's not like the hedge fund firms. It's yeah. beyond that, right? It's really a management fund. Uh, there probably is a name that I'm blanking on. That I mm-hmm. that as soon as we get off, I'll remember. But the, the key thing is, is that these are folks who are very, very. If they're not just close to Wall Street, they've been embedded in Wall Street, and they've been brought into the into the White House in a fashion, the West mm-hmm. Wing in a fashion. But here's this is the thing. In the 1930s, young, young minority lawyers, when I say minority, I mean Jewish and Italian lawyers coming out of Harvard University, which mm-hmm. Catholic and Jewish lawyers was, were not common in many of these places, despite the mythology. Yeah. And they would go to Felix Frankfurter, who was a professor at Harvard University Law School, and they would say, send us to Washington. We want to be New Dealers, Okay. And Frankfurter would say to them, I can do that, but first you have to go to Wall Street because if you want to control them, if you want to regulate them, you got to know how to do that. So I'm not telling you that Biden brought them in for that. It's quite possible he was told to bring them in so they'd keep an eye on on Biden himself. But I'm just telling you that in the first hundred days or six months, we are really, we really should be paying attention. And in our own ways, through labor, through various organizations, 
by way of folks who have access to Bernie and the squad, let them know that we've got we've got their backs and we've got great expectations. That's first. Second, can I, can Bernie I, I has make, a major agenda. Yeah, I'll stop. One point, one, no, one point on that. Um, it's funny you say that because that was exactly the excuse uh, Barack Obama made in 2008 when he put together his economic uh, council was we all come criticize, you know, Tim Geithner and all these choices. He says, well, who's going to get us out of this economy? People who've, who've, who've been there and understand how Wall Street works. And I, I remember that was my first moment. And I had been a I had, you know, I was a huge supporter. I was organizing for Obama. Uh, that's when I lost it. <laughs> I just said, excuse me. <laughs> The first decision you make is to bring in Tim Geithner and your excuses. We need people who know how it works. I, but, and, and please, I, I have cleaner hands than you. I was not a big supporter of Barack Obama. Okay. Were you a Hillary Clinton but, supporter? Because those were the choices. I, I, never. never <laughs> was... I, I voted. I voted for Hillary. But after my experience, look, I didn't want Clinton in the 90s. I didn't want Hillary later. I thought Clinton was one of the most disastrous presidents competing with maybe Jimmy Carter for in terms of the Democratic Party disasters. Um, no, it's just that I didn't, I actually didn't trust Barack Obama because of the fact that he, I didn't think he was ready to be president. I didn't think he was, I didn't think he would be very effective. And, and in fact, most of the people who talked to me about why we needed him gave me completely ridiculous reasons that I don't want to repeat right now, okay? And, and to be fair, I, I mean, just for folks to remember, he had very little experience in the Senate. So, you know, there is something to yeah, be said about understanding right. how, especially in the middle of a crisis like this, where you're going to have to lean on a legislative body. Um, I mean, if there's one thing that Biden does have that hopefully he'll use to his advantage is understanding how to maneuver the legislature, he, yeah. he, he is a, I mean, he's also a product of neoliberalism. So I don't know if he can get out of his own little, you know, uh, conditioning yeah. as well. So right. I'm sorry, but I cut you off. The other thing I wanted to emphasize is that I can't make enough, I really don't think I can over, overstate how important it is that Bernie Sanders is the manager, he's going to be the chair of the, of the budget committee in the Senate. I mean, you know, they've set up this power sharing thing, which is not atypical if you've got a divided Senate. They each have equal numbers, but he's the chair. Okay, he's the chair and things are going to happen without question. They're going to happen. Here's another thing. We don't have someone in the White House, but you know what? I'm going to be very I'm going to be very <laughs> mystical about this. I never get mystical. I'm going to be mystical. We actually have someone in the White House. Joe Biden has organized his Oval Office so that the seating focuses on a painting of Franklin Roosevelt. Mm. Now, I know, I know, once again, I'm talking symbolism, but let's not forget the symbolism of the Trump Oval Office with Andrew Jackson Unreal. on the wall. OK, so I'm telling you, you know, if somebody's in the room like Bernie, and I, I don't know if he'll do it, but if Bernie's in the room and they're talking about legislation, if Joe gets a little neoliberal, goes a little neoliberal on him, I want to see Bernie stand up, raise up his hand and say, Franklin, are you what listening to this? Do you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's so. It's, I mean, again, I, I'm looking. It's not just that I'm looking for hope. Optimism yeah. is not me, okay. But I, but it is that I'm looking for hope. But also because I think he's trying to tell people this is what you should start expecting. And I think you're right. We're in a crisis that is, it is almost unprecedented. And the reason I say almost unprecedented is we can go back to the 1770s, the 1860s, and the 1930s. And we've had just this kind of crisis. It's on the verge of a mortal crisis. 
and Biden does not want to be the last president of the United States. And I think he's letting people know, you may think you know me, but you've got to know that this is, this is a new presidency and maybe I'm a new man. Now, having said that, I really do want to say one other thing, and this is the punchline to all of it. In essence, maybe he's challenging us. And if he's not, we should at least read it that way because when FDR challenged Americans, working people in particular, he challenged us, well, I wasn't alive then, but he challenged us to push him. So is not just holding there accountable. There you go again. That's what Obama said too. I'm sorry. It's no. You know. He, I disagree. He did not. Obama did not. He said, "Show me the example. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Push me. Here's why I worried about the inaugural. I'm going to tell you why I worried about the inaugural address, and I'm going to use two examples, two stories. One about Clinton, Bill, and one about Obama. When Bill Clinton gave his inaugural address back in 1993, and I, was, I, I wasn't watching it, I was listening to it on the radio as I drove into the university. He was talking about, they were celebrating the fact that this was like Jeff, a Jeffersonian event. He himself had gone to Monticello and actually taken, the, uh, taken a bus from Monticello to Washington to reenact Jefferson riding a donkey or a mule or a horse from Monticello to DC for his inauguration. Yeah. And he had always liked quoting Jefferson on the campaign trail because Bill Clinton's middle name was Jefferson. So he goes before the American people. Now he's got the entire nation, basically, as his audience. And he tells everyone, just as Thomas Jefferson said, in every generation, Americans need change and blah, blah, blah. And I knew it was all over because that's not what Jefferson said. What Jefferson said was, in every generation, Americans will need some rebellion. Okay. And in fact, it was basically all over. Thereafter, it was all over. I don't want to go through the whole story of Clinton right now. Now let's go to Barack Obama. Barack Obama stands before the nation in 2009. And in contrast to FDR, who faced a crisis like Obama was facing, and, and even worse, whereas FDR pointed a finger at Wall Street pointed a finger at Wall Street and said, you know, we know who's to blame for this, okay? And then what did Obama do? He basically said, we're all at fault for this. He didn't hold anyone accountable. We're all at fault for this. And when he reviewed, he made some historical reference, he never mentioned labor once. So admittedly, yesterday, Biden did not give us the signal that he was going to be the kind of president that you and I would hope for. On the other hand, even as he was doing that speechifying, there were people behind him, not behind him on the podium, the people behind him up, up on the dais. I, that's not the kind of people I'd want to hang out with. They're the ones who gave us Donald Trump. OK, all of them. What I'm saying is he was in the process of firing the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board. So mixed signals, admittedly, but. I think we're better off with, with Biden than we were with Obama. At least we ha- we'll, I think we'll find out soon enough. He, he, uh, he has become more left in his 70s, uh, admittedly. This is something Marcus said yesterday, and I think that was an interesting take um, on some issues like gay marriage. Maybe it's influence of his children. I don't, I don't know what it is. Um, 
And by the way, if you're right about Obama, then we failed him. No, I mean, I, th- I think I think what's what, what Obama, first off, we don't I'm a big believer that movements should not influence leaders. Leaders should have courage. Read the effing room. Uh, worst case, see where the wind is blowing. Uh, <laughs> and we elect you to be courageous. You don't always, by the way, have to respond exactly what your constituents say, because sometimes, I mean, we do live in a republic, unfortunately, and so, I shouldn't say unfortunately, there's, there's good aspects of being in a republic, too. Uh, but, you know, the, the, sometimes your constituents are wrong. I'm sure that if Ted Cruz listened to the majority of his constituents all day long, we would not be happy. Uh, but, but sometimes you have to do what's right. And that, the yes. writing is on the wall right now. And there's really... Okay, this is the one part that just baffles me. You're writing an inaugural speech, knowing you're not writing it for the moment. You're writing it for history. You're writing it for the Harvey K's 50 years from now. We're going to be looking back at this moment and reading that. And what I predict is the Harvey K's 50 years from now, the Harriet K's, whatever you want to call them, um, are going to look at it and say, did he recognize what was, was he out to lunch? Was he out to lunch? I have a whole set of remarks where I was going to tear him apart. Okay, don't. I'm not complimenting his speech at all beyond his nod to Black Lives Matter. That's all. Okay. Oh no, I agree. I'm not disagreeing with you. But wait, but I am going to. I said to you early on, I'll agree with every argument you make, but I'm actually going to disagree with you on something. We don't. I don't want to elect someone who's going to fight for me. I've said this before. I want. That's why I wanted Bernie. We need to elect people who will not only have courage, but will encourage the fight in us. Sure. And, that, and that's what I'm waiting to see in, Obama, um, in Biden. I want to know in the next three weeks, if he not only does right by the National Labor Relations Board's original mission, I want to know if he's then through his labor secretary, Marty Walsh, right. through himself, I don't care who delivers the message for the administration. I want that administration to say, we are empowering the National Labor Relations Board because we want you to join a union. And by the way, that may sound outrageous, but when in early 1930s, when FDR was president, whether whether FDR told them or not, the union movement at that time read him Mm -hmm. and put up posters, your president wants you to join a union. I love that. And I think that, you know, so maybe we ought not even to wait for Biden. Maybe the AFL-CIO right now should be pumping out those posters and taking ads. Your president wants you to join a union. It's it's your neighbors want you to join a union. People who don't who can't join a union want you to join a union because yeah. we as a collective become stronger. Uh, it's, it's 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 what the fabric of our country is is going to start, which is extremely tethered right now. Right it'll start being woven together again. I mean, right now, I just feel as if we're extremely disjointed, we're not connected. And when, um, you know, it's part of the reason why I've put a lot of energy into 
to calling out aspects of the DNC and, 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 and especially after 2016 saying, you know, look at, there was so much money thrown into the DNC, but let's talk about where that money went. It didn't go to organizing. It didn't go to distributed. It wasn't distributed to state parties to recruit talent. And state parties aren't perfect, but there could have been, if you invest in them, they're more likely to have activity so that there are yeah. folks running against those people who've, you know, been in state party chair positions for like 35 years. Um, they're little fiefdoms. But we can't, there's two simultaneous issues happening. Unions have been under uh, weakened for the last 40 years and uh, state parties have been completely ripped to shreds so that Republicans are using the localized strategy to, 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 to kneecap us. And I think when, I don't know, I don't know if that's what Biden was. I don't know if Biden wants to be pushed. I think that the ecosystem of the Obama, Biden, Harris, Clinton, neoliberal structure, right, would be just as happy having a disorganized, uh, uh, you know, the, the movement shouting on Twitter rather than pairing up with their local union, reforming their unions, getting new leadership in some of these unions have gotten a little stagnant and, and uh, organizing at the local level to, to run and win. I mean, I don't, I, listen, what happened in Georgia was beautiful. Thank goodness people said, I'm not waiting for you to save us. We're going to do it ourselves because you saved all of us as a result. Right. But they're not the going to do it for us. And that's yeah, what worries and, me. And by the way, you, you, you actually spoke in correlational terms, but there was a real causation in what you were referring to. And that right. is, State Democratic parties became as weak as they became because unions were being pushed up against the wall and smashed. They're also purged from the DNC. And well, and and I'm going to come back to that in a moment. And keep in mind as well that who do you think brings out the voters? Exactly. It's school teachers and unions. It's union members of postal workers union. I mean, it's all of those folks or whatever the local industry is. They go door to door. They call their union brothers and sisters. They bring them out to vote. Smash the unions. You don't have those people going door to door. And by the way, the DNC question, this is interesting. And, and I'll, I'll even give a, a plug to my friend and the man you had on yesterday, Tom Frank, Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank like as I have, have called over and over again attention to the fact that the Democratic Party did become the party of the Clintons. And in spite of his rootedness in Arkansas and her rootedness in Illinois and Chicago, it became the party of the coastal elites and, and, as a con- and turned their back on working people, but also in turning their back on working people, turned their back on the middle of the country. I, listen, so I have you- these, these beautiful memories, right? really beautiful memories growing up in Buffalo, New York, uh, a former yeah. factory town, uh, you know, ripped the, the trade deals of the late seventies, just wrecked Buffalo. You know, I'd go by decrepit factories on the way to school every morning and it was, it was depressing. You, the can use the skies. Word. You, can, you can use the term, go ahead. What? <laughs> what word? I thought you were going to say rust belt. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> they were very rusty buildings. Um, I mean, that's what I always associate because that's what I saw. I grew up around yeah, right. rusty old buildings that were empty, yeah. that had, I mean, 
just line the streets of, of the, the parts of the city of Buffalo, the waterfront and the town that I grew up in. And it was depressing. And and people should know that architecture in Buffalo is outstanding. In the city of Buffalo, it is stunning. Yeah. It is, um, you know, there's, the, uh, you know, Olmstead uh, helped design the streets. It's, it, the park's a very, very beautiful city if you have a chance that they do architectural tours there. And it's also been revived. A lot of these factories have finally, um, you know, yeah. been cleared out. So thank goodness. But with that being said, there's still, it, we hadn't reached the point where we have now with the Democrats in which uh, the like, unions don't really exist in the Democratic Party. Back in the old days, when, when my parents were involved in local politics, I would do, go do phone calls at these union halls. And it was all these old guys who used, you know, lost many, many of them lost their jobs at these, at Westinghouse yeah. and, and all these different places. But it was the coolest thing. I was, I was like an eight-year-old doing calls for, for the Democrats in Buffalo, which is extremely Trumpian now, um, in yeah. Chictawaga, New York, where, where it was once recently labeled the most racist city in America. Wow. I mean, this is where the Democratic Party used to thrive in the years that I've been alive. So it, there's just been so much disconnect. And by the way, it's also... That's the time period that was the beginning of the Clinton era. That was when the Clintons needed those unions to organize votes for them. So as much as they purged unions from the Democratic Party, they used them, including Hillary herself, to get into office and to the Senate in New York. I really think um, it was a slow roll. And it, it, I think the real deep purge happened uh, post-Clinton during the Bush era. There was an opportunity for the Democratic Party to just completely wipe the slate, wipe, wipe the party of, of all union support. Yeah, and I can tell you, I hate to just fill things out with history, is that I'm going to shock people here. The man who was responsible for first reducing the influence of labor in the Democratic Party was George McGovern. I thought you were going to say yep. Carter. I thought you were going to say no, Carter, yes. No, C Carter, Carter could care less. He, but he basically pushed it out. McGovern yeah. chaired a commission in, in, after yeah. the 68 convention, which rewrote the rules on how to structure the DNC, and labor lost, right. lost its power in the DNC. Now, in part, they say, because they wanted to give more space for uh, people of color and for women, undeniably. It just so happened, the, sad, the tragic part was, that was just around the time in so many unions that women and people of color were making a, were making a greater if they were becoming a greater presence in the union movement. It's part of, right. look, the, the tragedy of labor in the left is a long story, but, and I don't know what Biden will do, but I do know with folks like Sarah Nelson and your guest, Jane McAlevey, and folks like that, it's and more promising that. today than it's been in a long time. That's, that's, I can tell you. Yeah. And that's, you know, just to give a little plug to Matriarch, which uh, I'm, I'm on the board oh, of, as many do, people yeah. know. Uh, that's 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 the goal of matriarch is to remind folks number one uh, labor matters labor is how we get out of these these problems but the labor movement is very much being led at least especially the parts where there, the parts of the movement that are the most vibrant by women and they come from unions that are women of color you look at these these states these red states the red state revolts coming from teachers unions these are majority women uh, made up of unions. It's a woman-led union nationally, and uh, and they've taken upon themselves to organize in places like Arizona and West Virginia, and of course Illinois. Um, you know, we know we've seen this kind of work happen over the past few years, but we believe that there need to be more women uh, who've been on the front lines, 
We're part of the labor movement in Congress doing what one of our founding members, Cory Bush, has been doing so powerfully in the last few weeks. And, you know, right. more Cory Bushes, just more Cory Bushes. <laughs> That's all. All right, on that note, Harvey K, Harvey K uh, in the year, what year is it now? In the year 2070. <laughs> remember, remember when um, uh, Conan O'Brien is like in, in like 1994, he'd be like, in the year 2000. It's now been 20 years since then. I'm dating myself, guys. Go look it up online if you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, in the year 2070, who's going to be the Harvey K? But for now, we have Harvey K you know, who, who can, yeah, can tell us how we got here. Always a pleasure. Can't wait to have you on next time to talk more. Right. Never enough time. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you Saturday for the Thomas Paine book club moment. Oh yes, but that's not live. So, so we'll do that Saturday. Oh, oh, you're going to have the questions. You and I got it. Okay. Submit your questions now. If you were part of the TNS book club, we're going to be doing a follow-up chat with Harvey K answering your questions. Uh, we already have the first part of our, our, our Thomas Paine book club conversation out to TNS book club members. Go to patreon.com slash the Nomi show. And I want to give a little shout out to one of our super chats. We have lots of them, but this one in particular relates to Harvey K. Tokyo Gouda, I love these names, sends lots of love. Thank you. Says, whoa, Nomi. Whoa, Nomi Key. Whoa. The only Harvey K of 50 years from now will be Harvey K. <laughs> It's true. Well, listen, you can follow me now or then, Harvey JK on Twitter. <laughs> Not JK, like just kidding. Also, Napoleon the Legend is mixing it up in the, ch in the chat right now. Gives his love. Love uh, this. My, we really uh, have a community. Brother, this is bet. great. My, yeah, my brother, right. Okay, great. I, All I'm right, everyone. Go into the chat for a little while at least. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back Bye. after this break with a Rep Rab and a Run Chowdhury. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Uh, if you're joining us on YouTube, smash that like button, click that bell. That's how you're gonna find out when I just impulsively wake up in the middle of the night and say, I need to do a live. I had a dream, it's 3.30 in the morning. Let me share it with you. Cause maybe that'll happen someday. <laughs> You'll only know if you are clicking that bell and you get that alert button on your phone and you're also awake at 3.30 in the morning. Uh, and to those on Twitch, thank you for joining us. As always, we're so grateful to you. All right, we've got Rep Rab back representing the 200th district of Pennsylvania in Northwest Philly, which delivered us the Democratic president. Thank you very much. And the one and only Arun Chowdhury back for his second day in a row. I just realized that. That's true. <laughs> Longest 24 hours ever. You haven't moved. I can't believe it, Arun. Nope. <laughs> Arun Chowdhury, of course, is a political filmmaker. He was the uh, chief. I'm just going to keep changing your name. First official White House videographer, the chief videographer under the Obama administration. And he worked as a creative director for Bernie Sanders 2016 election. It was a very creative election cycle. Guys, it has been um, over 24 hours and since, mm. since the inauguration, and now we're already going in the wrong direction is what Senator McConnell says. We're just going in the wrong direction on climate. I'm glad that he acknowledged climate existed. Uh, just all sorts of bad things. He is ready. There's no honeymoon period. We're in the wrong direction. Let's play that clip. So our side is ready to share ideas and work with the Biden administration, applying common sense to find common ground for the common good. Oof. Common sense to apply a common ground to the common good. That's some alliteration. Clever. Arun, you're is. a messaging uh, expert. Would you grade that one? 
Um, for him, pretty good because usually he doesn't give you anything alliterative. He just says like, we're not going to do that or this is what's happening and that's what happens. Uh, and again, second day in a row, I will have to say, you know, the, the legislative chambers are still a mystery to me with their arcane, uh, you know, crazy ways. But my understanding uh, is that he is already doing quote unquote unprecedented things in uh, some of these committee meetings to make sure that things don't happen. I mean, when are we going to learn that he's good at this? And I just don't understand why we don't have people on our side who also understand like how to make unprecedented things happen at, at committee hearings. Like already he is showing us that he will be an effective force. We are still living in the age of McConnell. That's what that clip shows me. Wow. Rep Rab, you've seen some screwy stuff, I'm sure, in, 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 in committees, rules tinkered with. What should we be on the lookout for? Oh, you're on mute, just as a heads up. Everything. That's what oh, we should okay. be, be prepared for. Um, a lot of people don't understand how um, folks can game the system procedurally. Mm. So this exists in every legislative body. There, if you understand the rules, you can uh, bend them to your will, uh, particularly if uh, you're in the majority. But if you're someone as skilled and crafty as minority leader Mitch McConnell is, uh, then you can do things that perhaps Democrats um, uh, anticipated but mm. did not want to um, publicize. Because if they assumed he was going to openly operate in bad faith, you're, you're poisoning the well. So you got to wait for him to do bad things and then respond, I think, might be one possible strategy they have. Here, here's the bigger issue that relates to your audience and uh, voters and non-voters alike who are concerned about our society. And that is, there have to be public servants on every level who trust the people and believe in co-governance and who say, we need your help. And uh, some or people who appreciate your help, whether it was asked for or not, right? <laughs> um, because uh, we have a role to play too. Um, you know, where the most extreme and ethical thing to do are uh, nonviolent direct actions to say, if you guys don't act, we will. Uh, that worked here in Pennsylvania, as you know, uh, um, when uh, we took matters into our own hands as members of, of the legislature and shut things down to demand immediate legislative action on police accountability measures. Um, those things can work, but it requires an inside outside game. It's where people on the inside trust and respect um, as equals those people who are not necessarily in elective office to do their part so that together we can move forward. But if it's an attitude of, listen, we're, we're, we're U.S. senators. We know what we're doing here. You, 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 you regular people just, you're going to have to trust us. Keep your powder dry and everything, you know, it'll work out. But you got to understand how things work. Then, then I'm not encouraged. And if this is um, representative of that mentality, um, bad things will happen and things will slow. And you, 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 you all know that we only have two years to do this. We don't have Yeah, We cannot expect that everything will go our way um, after 2022 or in 2022, which means that just like the Obama administration was able to eke out uh, Obamacare uh, using a strategy that I was not particularly fond of with Rahm Emanuel at, at the helm, 
we need to learn from those mistakes and figure out how to front load as much as possible. And we also have to come together for those of us who are progressive, who want to move our country forward, how we can best um, complement and hold accountable this new administration, because um, we got to work with this administration, but that does not mean that we have to be um, complacent far, right. <laughs> quite the, quite the contrary. So, so it's, it's so interesting you bring this up in terms of our power and, and really, I mean, unintentionally, that's sort of been a theme of the show is how we shift our roles now from being uh, a Trump resistance and, and a neoliberal resistance to actually the power does come from us. We, you know, it's much harder. We have to understand the levers of power. We have to understand where the pressure points are, but McConnell being the genius he is, has come out publicly and said, oh, Biden doesn't owe it to the left, to the far left, meaning he, my guess is he's, he's trying to remind Biden, remember those John Kasich voters that, that, that you got in Ohio and all these other states that you think mattered but really didn't? Um, you know, you owe it to those upper middle class uh, Republicans who were grossed out by Trump, not to these far left DSA people. I will say this is just the persistence of kind of the Lincoln project uh, like projection. You know, there still is a false idea amongst the general public that more Republicans voted for Joe Biden than otherwise would have in a normal election. And the numbers don't bear it out. Hillary Clinton got a larger percentage of Republican crossover votes than Joe Biden did uh, because people want to vote for something and they felt like she represented yeah. something for them. I mean, I want to give her credit here. Like she didn't just reach out to them rhetorically. She reached out to them with some policy. Uh, this is, uh, it, it's just not what happened. And all over the world, we see the difference between um, what young people and progressives did in these elections all over the world. And if that contrasts too badly with what they get out of these administrations, we're going to have a problem. Let's roll the clip real quick. We've got it ready. Now, it's still early, Mr. President. There's still plenty of time for President Biden to remember that he does not owe his election to the far left. (laughs) I mean, what's what's so crazy about this is I don't know what McConnell deems the far left. I mean, it could basically just be uh, (laughs) anybody to the left of Joe Biden, (laughs) which is not necessarily the far left. But but it does seem like... Everything he does, he does with intention, right? He is dealing with a party right now that is in total shambles. And what is the way to make sure? I mean, even even uh, McCarthy, my, uh, he has said that the insurrection was not caused by Trump. Well, yesterday McCall, McConnell said publicly that the insurrection was incited by Trump. So the two leaders, representatively, of the Republican Party in the legislature, don't even agree on something that is circumstantial and very important to the legislature right now. Which don't forget we're still in the middle of an impeachment. So the party is in shambles. And I think like, Mm. it seems like McConnell's just trying to flex his muscle and appear like, oh no, we're we're, we're perfectly fine. And by the way, we got you the election. Does that seem, Aran, you've got some thoughts, I see. That's true, I think to some extent, but I think he knows if he can tap dance for a hot 30 seconds, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, which is one one of his deputies said, you know, looking at all the numbers, even after, you know, uh, the sixth, Trumpism without Trump seems like a governing majority for the next 15 years in this country. Hmm. And I, I think that there's truth to that. So, yeah, he's got some papering up to do. It's a little scary for them. No one knows how to talk about it exactly because, you know, uh, Trump is hand in glove with this event now. But 
I think they see what they have to do, and that's helpful. And, but, but also, I mean, Rep. Rab, you, you could speak to this, just the Congress needs, I mean, they, they could very well pull out a win, Republicans, in 2022, as you mentioned, but they also are more beholden to these populist movements that are impulsive than the Senate is, by any means. Yeah, and they have a villain, and it's the far left. Whatever the far left is, it, it, they don't need to define it. Yeah. It means any unreasonable fear they have of, of what they're used to and the bubble that, that protects um, them from sanity and from introspection, right? <laughs> um, these things are very have great rhetorical value. So mm-hmm. just saying the far left works for his purposes. Just like saying right-wing extremists work for ours, the only difference is um, there's a majority of people and a majority of voters who believe what the believe in the things that the so-called far left believe in, right? So if mm. we identify as the far left and say, well, far left means um, healthcare for all, housing is a right, full and fair public education, um, you know, a, a green infrastructure, where's the radicalism there? Like, I mean, the majority of people support that. And we have to double down on that. The problem that we have is we have greater ideological diversity in the Democratic Party and those in the progressive left than uh, on the right. And because if you take away the insurrection, you take away calling up to white supremacists openly, you take away the rape charges, they're supportive of everything. Yeah. Everything, what, the tax cuts, the Muslim ban, I mean, on and on and on, the wall, all those things. And those things are no less deplorable for a party or individual to embrace. So they're actually, to Rump's point, they, they, can, they can tap dance and figure this out because so much of what Trump supported, Republicans have been supporting since the Tea Party and before, when I was on Capitol Hill in the 90s, under Newt Gingrich. It's oh, yeah. the same war. Happy Cannon. That's, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I want to play this real this clip of, of David Gregory because it relates to this. Mm. It's not just a problem with Republicans. You still have this media ecosystem. You know, he's a former uh, he's the former host of Meet the Press. He's a yeah. longtime Washington insider. Uh, David Gregory thinks that the focus should be on the far left as well. His his idea of the far left. Let's play that clip. I'm losing my mind with these people. Says Congress moves slowly. And there's difficult politics. So modern executives, modern presidents want to use the full power of their executive authority uh, to signal change. And in this case, it's also a signal to the left of his party that President Biden's going to come through for you. And, and mark my words, the right, the Republicans are going to be watching that very closely, saying, oh, yeah, yeah you know, this, this new president's going to be a captive of the left. Look at those initial executive orders. I mean, what, what really frustrates me is they, they make the left out to be this, like, rabid group of It's just people who want fair wages, who don't want to be commodified. Who, who are not part of some Ponzi scheme to make Elon Musk the richest man in the I mean, world? I think you're taking it too personally. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Like, let's just remember what the left was to the people who matter in this conversation, which are Republican ad makers. 
you know what I mean? My colleagues on the right. And when they're reaching into the toolbox, they don't find Ilan Omar. They find Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Like just saying, you know, and this is what he's doing now. He, what, what, in a way, McConnell is gifting us something by reminding us that what Republicans define as the radical left is Democrats. Just yes. Democrats doing Democrat stuff. And so like, you know, you have just, you will get just as much incoming going for Medicare for all as you will for going for something much, much softer. This is just not. Well, he's responding to like the executive actions of, I don't know, rejoining the Paris Agreement. Like what planet are these right. people right. on? Like, simple I mean, things. think about it. Uh, like it runs that this is Democrats being Democrats in in the best sense of the word, right? The things that uh, Biden has done on, on on his first day are emblematic of what Democrats should be doing, right? Um, here, here. Uh, and going back to FDR, but let's also bring in some conservative Republicans who would have done similar things. So you have Ronald Reagan, a Republican icon, talking about amnesty for immigrants right. in this country. Right. Um, you're talking about Richard Nixon who created the EPA. You're talking about um, George Bush Sr. who was talking about we need to embrace immigrants from the South and from like- we're and, and by the way, regulating NRA. People don't even realize mm -hmm. George Bush Sr. was taking on the, the, the far right extremism that was about to take over the NRA. Right, right, so we have Republican icons, we have a consistent record where there was some ideological diversity, not as much, you know, um, but a lot more than there is today for decades. But they're, they're lionizing Democrats and calling us the far left, uh, you know, for rhetorical and strategic purposes. And they're going to appeal to their base and that's fine. We're not going to get to most of those folks until any of these policies through the Biden administration start trickling down and then they say, oh yeah, I like this. Uh, may, they may not admit it publicly, but they'll say, I don't want to give up my, uh, you know, this or that. Like no one ever turns back to social security money. All the people believe in socialized, yeah. don't believe in socialized this or don't believe in socialized that. They believe in social security. No one's handing in those checks. So I think we have, the, the work we have to do is has a lot to do with uh, strategic communications and messaging around what we actually believe in. And some of that is gonna come from those of us um, left of most of the people in the Senate um, to hold them accountable to what the majority um, of Democratic voters want. And you know that's, that's gonna be our job in terms of co-governance. Well I hear what you're saying, and I think that this is this is one of I, in this this deal that McConnell and Schumer have. My gut is telling me, like I have no evidence to support this, that McConnell put that forward to basically say, "Put up or shut up." You know, you either are gonna we're gonna have this whatever deal, or we're gonna ram everything through because you're gonna have to run around and try to tell Republican voters that you didn't want to uh, give them two thousand dollars checks per month. I mean, because at the end of the day, those are the, it doesn't matter what party you're from. On the other hand, you have folks like Mitt Romney, who's never had to worry about a $2,000 check in his life before, or whether or not he should pay for health care. He has the ability to pay for health care or can afford school for his 9,000 children. Um, <laughs> he's the one who's like, whoa, 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 COVID relief package. This is ill-timed. He literally 
thinks should... that the relief package is <laughs> right. ill time. good times. Right. Right. This is the reasonable one, by the way, guys. This is the guy, Mitt Romney. Ooh, I hate him the most, who actually. Had Romney care, guys. Like, this isn't even like if there's anybody who's going to understand the need to deal with healthcare crises, it's the guy who actually basically wrote Obamacare for him. A run. <laughs> you hate him most? Why? Uh, because you know what? There's something about him that drives me nuts because he's like a militant conformist who cares about a lot of these the weird culture wars he picks or like the market stuff. It's not that he even wants it for him. He just, he thinks this is like right and good and proper. So for the same reasons why some of the Trump stuff bothers him because it's impolite or untoward, he actually thinks that maybe poor people wanting a little more is not just bad policy. It's impolite. It's a bad time. Why are you even asking for this? And I, you know, I hope that one of the byproducts, the Biden era may be, you know, having actually these people be able to show their true colors in a way that you could hide behind when Trump was there. You know, I know you're very familiar with Arizona politics. You know, Jeff Flake is just hiding out there being like an anti-Trump Republican who can like launch back into somehow being a reasonable human being. But that is absolutely not the case. We have to take the case to Republican voters. We don't have to convince these people who represent them. We know what they want. They want health care. They want to know where their dollars are going when we send people abroad. There's places where we agree and we have to conform and we have to forge a consensus with people, not with these politicians. When you compromise with politicians, you just get bad policy. I mean, look at look at Josh Hawley. Uh, you, there were leftists praising him a few months ago because of his partnership with, with none of these people, your friends. You know? Exactly. That's what Mama told you. Exactly. They're not your friends. He can, he might be able to pair up on one issue with uh, Senator Sanders, but it does not mean that he's an ally to the movement right. in any way. And we also have to realize, too, that most people don't vote. Mm-hmm. When we say half the country voted totally. for Trump, that's not true. In, in, and by the way, in one election, we had record. What about all these other elections? Right, right. The majority of this country does not vote. Um, and uh, And not nearly a critical mass of people who are already registered voters with a few notable exceptions, which means that most folks are disengaged and dispirited, which means that there's an opportunity to, to engage them differently mm. and substantively around issues that really matter to them and their families. And um, if we see that, that responsibility, it's our fault, right? And frankly, there are some very lefty things that most people would embrace. And it's funny, when folks are really desperate, they become very left-leaning. Oh, I'll take a check from the government because, you know, I'm not going to spend it on crack or whatever they think poor people <laughs> spend you know, money on. Like, is it, oh, well, I can be a good steward of money. It's my money. I'm the taxpayer. But when it's black and brown folk in cities, it's like, oh, well, you're giving them everything. And they're lazy and, you know, so there's actually an opportunity in these um, multiple crises to reach folks in different ways, but you have to be methodical. And frankly, that's not the work of, of the Senate, <laughs> right? That's not going to be that stakeholder group to do that. They should listen and follow the, uh, follow the lead of other stakeholder groups, yeah. but we have to do that work. You know, and the same thing you're saying about there being sort of no laissez-faire capitalists in a pandemic, you know, like I do think, it's time for us as a progressive movement to get short-sighted 
to actually demand right. big structural change in a very short way. Because just like Rep. Rob said, once you start doing something, it's hard to undo it. And once people see the utility uh, of something, it will be hard Obamacare. to undo it. Perfect so, example. You know, if they we tried. need universal health care just to get universal vaccine coverage, well, let's try it out for a year and see what doesn't happen. <laughs> right. Okay, Mitch, we'll give you a grace period. Just let us test. Let's you know what? You're right. We should be cautious. You're right. It's the people's money. <laughs> let's, let's do a one-year universal health care just to test it out. It's just like all those, remember those CD companies we used to get in the mail? When Columbia you were getting, I guess, House. Yeah, Columbia House. Free month, and then you don't realize you're being charged to this day, actually. I think I still have a, a bill that I have I to remember. pay. remember. <laughs> but it was great. The kids loved it. It was definitely predatory. Mm -hmm. No big deal. Arun Chowdhury, uh, live from Berlin. Thank you for joining us today. And Rep Rab, always a pleasure having you. Uh, to everybody in the chat, let's do some shout outs real quick. This is a revolution. This is revolution podcast says, didn't that really change the discourse around the mortgage financial crisis to one of failed systems uh, to one of individual responsibility? I think this was in relation to the earlier conversation. Denarchy on Twitch says, what happens when Biden disagrees with Bernie? Then Nira Tannen steps in. She's going to mediate. That's what, I don't know. <laughs> Great question. I think Bernie will just be like, okay, good. What was it? Okay, yes, good. What's his line that he says? Anyone? No. Okay, yes, good. Something like that. that, that okay, good. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. And then he's just going to go do his own thing. Uh, Liu Kang says, I heard there's a bipartisan effort in the works to overturn Citizens United versus FEC. I need them to add Buckley versus Vallejo while they're at it. I don't know. I haven't heard much about that. I'm curious. Maybe I just missed it. Uh, I'd be very curious about it, though. Heather Thompson says, well, I have to say I liked seeing the bust of Cesar Chavez in the Oval Office. Yeah, it was wonderful. I, I have to examine his Oval Office a little bit more. All right, we have some other ones here that I missed. Uh, Art sends lots of love. As always, Art, you're so generous. Thank you. You are making this happen. This is a big part of our show. And Craven James says, who's the biggest leftist organized in Disneyland? Most people would assume it's Goofy, but no, Mickey. Hope you liked my joke. No, Mickey. Love your show. I've been dealing with that joke my whole life, so thank you. It was a little bit more creative. I like that. Loretta Banks uh, says, paraphrasing James Carville, hit them hard and take the GOP down now while they are in disarray. Exactly. I don't know if James Carville today would say that, but James Carville, let's channel that. That's when you get them. Get them while they're weak. Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska says, Mitch, obstructionist will fuel anarcho-Bidenism. <laughs> I love this new brand. Uh, Chacon505 says, I wanted to give Biden a chance to catch his breath before I uh, spoke ill of him, but I'm, I'm so grossed out that he wants to recognize Guaido. Yes, in Venezuela, I agree. Uh, can he not see the hypocrisy or he just doesn't care? I don't know. It's just gross, especially after 1-6-2001, uh, meaning the, uh, the insurrection. And Mario Quaid says, Obama did say that. I forgot which one, but he made sure it didn't happen. He kneecapped grassroots organizations, even state parties, and sent liberals and progressives asleep. We quoted a few things Obama said in 2009. Uh, and then Al Walski sends some love. Thank you so much. A few bucks to make good trouble. And oh, I still miss some. Um, Any more? Oh, YouTube chat. A run. The YouTube chat loves your hair. Loves, nice. loves, loves your hair. <laughs> I found a, I sent it uh, over text. I found a video that now this did of a run in 2016. And it was a very similar look. You even commented, my hair, your hair looks great. That, that video yeah, had like a million a lot of views. Volume. I mean, now we take all take chances with our hair, you know, but back I then don't. it was daring. 
<laughs> that's fair. Mine's a little frizzy right now. I got to say that, but that's all I have. Uh, Dorsey, did I miss any? I know I've, I went really quickly through that. But anyways, shout outs to everybody in Twitch. You guys are killing it. Thank you for helping us grow. We just hit, I believe we just hit 1K and, and I haven't really been plugging this. So thank you. Thank you for everybody who's who from other shows that have come in. Um, you guys have been amazing. Harvey K, who was on the show and now is in the live chat on YouTube and Twitch. Thank you. Big thank you to Mario for filling in for me. Docs working those algorithms and huge thanks to our mods Bob Choke in the Orb and Chuck Diesel on YouTube and Dorian Sapiens and A Difficult Truth on Twitch for keeping the live chat troll free and we have another one that just came in Ian Kinzel says nothing witty to say here I just was bored so here's five bucks thank you that'll pay for one of these extremely expensive iced coffees and and you know this is I'm sure we all have these issues right these are eco-friendly, but they are not great when they've been sitting for an hour. The one that I love the most, and I'm really happy, I'd be really happy if they sponsored the show, is the one made out of avocado. I don't know if you guys have had that one. That, it feels like plastic, it stays hard. Best one out there, the avocado one. I don't know how they do it. It's like avocado pit or not, but I would be happy to sell those on the show if you guys want to reach out to me. <laughs> All right, everybody, take care, be well. And Arun just put a picture up. I don't know if you guys can see it. He has much shorter hair in that picture. I, I think that's from like 30 years ago, Ron. <laughs> All right. Solidarity, everyone. <laughs> Be well. We will see you tomorrow at 3 o'clock Eastern. Yeah, yeah.